Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Hello everyone, I'm Laura Partridge. I'm Associate Director of Education here at the RSA, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to today's online event, which is part of our Bridges to the Future series, where we're exploring ideas for a better post-COVID world. I'm delighted to have the chance this afternoon uh, to talk to three very special guests. The first is Laura McInerney, who's one of the country's most respected and influential education journalists and co-founder of the Essential Daily Survey app for teachers, TeacherTap. Kieran Gill is a former teacher and now founder and CEO of The Difference, an organisation that trains specialist school leaders to meet the learning, well-being and safeguarding needs of all children, especially the most vulnerable. Kayleigh Wainwright is Joint Director of Engagement at UK Youth, which is a movement of over 5,500 youth clubs and organisations who are committed to ensuring that all young people are empowered to build bright futures regardless of their background or circumstances. So welcome to you all and thank you very much for sharing your time with us today. Um, I know how busy everyone is um, and what a chaotic time it is for everyone working in education, so we're really grateful that you took this time. And you've generously agreed to share with us some of the challenges um, that schools are facing right now. And this is something that we've looked at in a quite recent RSA blog entitled No School in Ireland. And in that essay, we pointed out that even before the COVID crisis hit, schools have been taking on all sorts of responsibilities um, for well-being, health and welfare of their pupils um, that wouldn't ordinarily be under the purview of schools, as budget cuts were limiting the capacity of other services to be able to, to respond to the needs of pupils. And obviously during the COVID crisis, this issue's come into even sharper focus. And now as schools start to welcome back some pupils, and as we've heard from September, all pupils due to be back full time, there's going to be a huge challenge to do the kind of support that pupils will need, not only around their learning catch-up, but also supporting their social and emotional needs, um, especially as those have developed through the crisis. So here at the RSA, we believe that schools can't shoulder that burden all alone, um, and it's time to think creatively about how we, we place schools right at the centre of a community of support um, where it's not only teachers who are responsible for responding to every need of children. I think that's an aspiration that all of our guests today would be keen to get behind and I know they have really valuable thoughts on how that might be achieved. So to kick off our discussion today I wanted to start by asking each of you to share a little bit about what you've been observing in your respective fields over the last few months of lockdown what struck you most clearly in relation to this issue of systemic weaknesses and gaps in provision and the demands placed on schools to function as essentially a safety net, especially for our most vulnerable young people. Laura, I'm going to start with you. You wrote a powerful Guardian article recently exploring the plethora of ways in which mainstream schools have stepped up during the crisis to meet the needs of families and students. Can you tell us more about how we've seen mainstream schools stepping up to the plate? Of course. So I think the thing that's been really interesting about this pandemic is we closed schools within 48 hours. So on a Wednesday, the education secretary stood in parliament and he said on Friday, when the children go home, schools will close until further notice. And that's kind of a ridiculous situation to suddenly find yourself in as a country. You have SATs cancelled, you have exams cancelled, but actually what head teachers were additionally told is you'll have three jobs from next week. 
One, you will have to be the child carers for key workers and vulnerable groups. Number two, you will have to um, provide food to any families that are low-income families within your community. And then number three, you should be providing distance learning for all children at home. And I think what that does is it shows you that constantly schools are being used not just for academic learning, that's really the distance learning bit, they're constantly being used as child care. And I don't just mean that in a babysitting way, although I don't think there's anything wrong with actually being the people who are responsible for looking after children for several hours per day, but it's actually the bigger caring responsibility. When we talk about that key worker and vulnerable children group, that word vulnerable is doing a lot of hard work. So that's covering children with special educational needs, but it was also covering children with protection orders, children that um, the school felt might end up um, in, in, in families that maybe were dysfunctional and unable to look after them properly where they might face abuse and so there were lots of things in that one one sentence that schools were doing then you take on the fact that we're asking these schools to provide food to families which has been an enormous operational and logistical thing to do including at half term including over the easter holidays and then i think we also had this issue around laptops and internet access because when you then say and everything is going to be done distance learning well actually how do you make that happen and so we've seen schools step in to provide laptops to try and get dongles out to their community i saw a woman who was a home economics teacher on twitter who had made up small bags of ingredients to send out to all of the children so they were going to be able to make cakes together in a food technology lesson i mean quite remarkable and amazing things that said, all this happens in schools every day. All it's done this time, I think, is number one, blow the lid open and show everybody what schools are doing. And then secondly, the inequalities have gotten bigger, if you like, because it's become harder to address some of those things. So whereas you can rely every day on having the majority of children in and a small proportion that are not in school, and so you can work with them separately, especially through welfare offices, what we've now seen are big big gaps for example even as schools are coming back schools in the most affluent quartile they've got about two-thirds of their children back schools that are in the poorest quartile they've got less than half of their pupils back so we're already seeing these massive inequalities and that's without talking about how differently you know people have learned in terms of online learning in terms of access to textbooks in terms of what sort of social interactions they've had during this time Thanks, Laura. Um, I, I couldn't agree more from all of the stories that we've been hearing from, from head teachers and teachers through this period and support staff in schools. It's been a, a mammoth effort, including visits home to check on pupils that they've been concerned about. So absolutely those safeguarding concerns coming to the fore. And I'm imagining, Kieran, that that's something that you will have particularly seen in the context of the Difference Programme, which is working with a lot of alternative provision schools. Um, I don't know if you'd like to explain a little bit about the programme first and then maybe about what you've seen through, through your partner schools during this period. Sure, thanks Laura, hi, and hi, thanks for having me. Um, so yeah, I run The Difference and I'm really lucky to work at the moment with two groups and from September with four groups of fantastic senior leaders, mostly in the South at the moment, but, um, but growing across the country. And the two groups of leaders that I work with are those in 
mainstream schools who are deputy heads, assistant heads and often head teachers responsible for inclusion. Um, we, we use the term big eye inclusion, so we don't just mean special educational needs there, but talking about that, the hard work that Vulnerable is doing, um, as, as described by Laura, thinking about not just children's learning needs, but how they intersect with their well-being needs, their mental health, their safeguarding too. Um, so I work with mainstream leaders who, uh, who lead on that across large mainstream secondary and primary schools. Um, and I join them, they, they come together six times a year with our core group, who are the difference leaders. Difference leaders are teachers who know that they want to get upskilled in this particular work with young people before they one day become head teachers. So they're aspirant leaders, they're recruited from mainstream schools and they spend two years in service in the senior leadership team of pupil referral units. So that second group, um, I'm really lucky, gives me access to lots of amazing pupil referral units, AP academies across the, the country now, um, who have really great practice, often that we might have less access to. I was, I was predominantly teaching in mainstream and we don't necessarily have the same teaching and learn, um, the same training that we have for teaching and learning, the same sort of CPD accessible to us, professional development, uh, continuous professional development. Um, so it's really great insight into what pupil referral units are doing because obviously they work with the most vulnerable children every day. And as Laura says, schools were shut across the country, but uh, they weren't uh, in many parts of the country. Pupil referral units have often stayed open throughout lockdown because the majority of their pupils have been vulnerable. Um, and as uh, a very similar to the story in mainstream that we've just heard they're really rising to that challenge as it's evolved as it's grown stretching from um the things we've discussed food packages sending work home trying as hard as we can to get children online when that is very difficult if they haven't got access to devices and uh, and internet but also trying to um to keep them engaged and maintain a connection either by bringing them back into school and I've seen schools kind of redoing their risk assessments almost daily with families. Is some children actually much safer at home than they were before? There's not the conflict around getting out of bed and um, those routines and actually some pupil referral units we know have really used this time to build great relationships with families. Thinking of the Rowans in Medway where uh, they haven't just dropped over food and, and um, work packages but actually similar to what Laura's talking about the cooking lots of projects that families can do together so that parents can do with children and they've really uh, flexed to an online community using Facebook using um, Twitter to have families interact with each other so a little bit like you would for assessment for learning right show me your whiteboards instead we've got families show me your plants that you've grown show me your cakes that you've baked um, and, and really building um, an online community to replicate the kind of face-to-face -face community that would have been happening for those learners who are not coming into school anymore so it's been it's been really exciting um, and we've also seen lots of cross-fertilization of ideas across our two schools sets of schools um, because often people referral units might work more multi-agency or as I've just described, might work um, with parents um, in, with closer relationships. And also we're often a little bit more therapeutically informed. I think one of the priorities for school leaders across the country is for us to get our heads around what trauma means for learning. What does it do to brains if children have experienced loss, bereavement? And we know that particular communities have been disproportionately affected by that. If they've experienced abuse, violence uh, neglect if they've if they've witnessed things if they've been kind of traumatized 
by um, by what they're hearing. You know, lots of younger children are very, very disorientated by the concept of, a, as you would be, a global pandemic uh, and national lockdown. And we need to learn as educators, what does that do to a child's brain? Um, and I've heard, seen teachers, you know, really going to, to work out what they want on their reading list and how they get September ready to think about, therefore, what that means for reintegrating learners, what that means for baselining with rigour, not just their lost learning, but perhaps their well-being, their mental health um, and the things that they need to put in place um, pastorally, I suppose, as well as academically to get them back on track from September. Absolutely. And could not agree more with you about the, the need to have a trauma-informed approach in schools. And that's going to be even more vital returning from this crisis, as you say, and even pupils who had never experienced trauma previously are likely to have been quite anxious through this period, not only about what a global pandemic means for, for them, their friends and their family, but also what it means for their educational prospects. You know, there's so much mislearning and there will be particular pupils at transition periods, whether into secondary or to college and work in university who are particularly worried about the setback that, that they may have had to, to their future plans and um, it was interesting actually we commissioned um, an RSA poll um, recently exploring what people would like to see schools look like in the future and over half of adults responding said they'd like to see more of a focus on social and emotional support in school so it's great to see that there's that public support um, for, for a different model and we'll return to that shortly um, but first I, I wanted to bring Kaylee in because we've talked about how schools have responded through this crisis but of course they've not been the only service there to support uh, young people and children um, and I'd love to hear a bit about how you've seen the youth sector responding to children's needs in this period. Yeah, um, firstly, yeah, thanks, thanks for so, uh, so much for having me. It's great to be here. Um, very much um, what Kieran and Laura were saying um, how around how schools have responded. The youth sector has been very similar. So quite quickly um, uh, had to think about, OK, what are the needs of the young people as we're going into lockdown? Um, and very quickly um, sort of move services online um, and actually that's something that's been um, uh, like quite an opportunity for the youth sector in a world where um, youth work is very much based on those face-to-face -face relationships and hasn't um, has been a bit maybe behind the curve in terms of getting into the digital space but this has provided that opportunity um, and quite quickly, we've seen whole services go online. So running things from virtual youth clubs, one-to-one -one mentoring sessions, counselling, um, kind of targeted support. Um, so really kind of coming on board with uh, thinking differently about how they can deliver. Um, the youth sector is obviously very varied and very broad and ranges from a small like community centre that or a couple of volunteers maybe running out of a church hall or a community centre right through to sort of big national charities and everything in between. And um, so we have seen, unfortunately, some youth organisations not able to deliver, especially those smaller groups. And that is a particular risk where those organisations are really embedded in communities, but don't have the financial sustain, like resources to sustain themselves long term. And we did a survey at sort of the start of lockdown, looking at what the impact of COVID might be. And we anticipate that around 17% um, of organisations, primarily those smaller ones, were at risk of permanent closure. So actually, when you're thinking of a whole ecosystem of support for children and young people, that's, you know, that's a lot um, of organisations. And having said that, we have seen some really innovative um, 
practice from the sector. We've seen a lot of organisations go in supporting schools, um, supporting with things around food, um, things such as food banks, delivering food, providing one-to-one -one support and uh, care, for, especially for vulnerable children and young people. Um, and I think there's a lot more to do in that area. And like I said, the digital aspects as well and taking services online. Um, we've also seen the sector really respond to try and bridge the, the gap around digital um, exclusion for young people. And so at UK Youth, we've um, partnered with Raspberry Pi and Microsoft to try and get devices out to those children and young people who aren't able to access them through schools for whatever reason, you know, because of a delay or because, yeah, they might have just left school. So like, especially that older age group who might still be classed as vulnerable but aren't in the formal education system anymore. Um, so that's been really good and have provided really good opportunities for partnership working as well. Thanks, Kayleigh. And um, I'm, of course, really sorry to hear how the, the youth sector is being affected through this crisis. And we know that it's a sector that had already been deeply affected by um, austerity and cuts over recent years. And um, so to be kind of dealt a further blow um, at exactly the time when they really needed, um, it, it's, it's incredibly difficult. Um, and it would be great to, to move on to, to how we support um, that, that ecosystem, um, as you described it, to work really effectively to support all children. But just first, I'm interested to know what you've seen the connections between youth organisations and schools to be like during this crisis. Have the two pulled together around the vulnerable learners, as you described? Yeah, I mean, I think definitely, there's definitely pockets of good practice where they, um, schools and local youth services have really pulled together. And as I said before, sort of providing um, outreach um, to families, providing emergency care packages, like working with schools to like, go out and target those, those young people who really need that specific help. Um, we've had examples where youth workers have actually been going into schools to support teachers to provides that um that those uh you know that education and support to young people who are going into school so with um you know vulnerable groups um so and that's been a really welcomed partnership i think in a lot for a lot of uh local areas and it just shows the benefits of doing that i think it's quite inconsistent it's not happening everywhere and one of the issues is because youth workers aren't seen as a key workers um, from a national level. So that's been a real issue locally um, in terms of, um, you know, the lo local authorities um, sort of putting in place like thorough and robust risk assessments when that, that, isn't, um, that hasn't been said that youth workers are classed as a key workers. So it's been quite tricky, but um, yeah, where it has worked, it's worked really well. And there's definitely an appetite um, in the youth sector to bridge that gap even more especially as we go into the summer period where um you know there's a recognition that the gap between attainment and um the gap of um you know young people who have had that support and have really thrived in in lockdown in terms of that digital learning and those who haven't because of whatever reason and becoming really a lot bigger and so how can I know in, in, our, in our network, we've really been thinking about how we can support schools to like really support, um, help young people over the summer period so that when September comes, that transition is much easier. There isn't as big a gaps, you know, if we don't do anything um, and how we can really do that. So what, what educational programs can we put in place over the summer? How can youth workers best support 
that emotional and social needs. Um, we, in our survey that we did that I just mentioned before, um, the, the top concerns around the impact on young people was impact on mental health, impact on loneliness and isolation, and then the lack of safe spaces. So whether that's because young people haven't got access to youth clubs or because their home in the, itself isn't a safe space and the impact that then has on the young person's ability to develop and learn. And so as youth workers can go back out now during the summer, how can they like link in with their local schools and teachers to put in place some of that broader support? And am I right in thinking that there has been an announcement from government that youth clubs are going to be able to open soon? Yeah, so youth clubs and community centres are able to reopen on the 4th of July, um, but the guidance is, um, is still, we're still trying to get clarity on some of the guidance. So, for example, uh, you, can, you can't still meet with more than one household outside, um, outside, you know, outside of your house, sort of in a closed, enclosed space. So you think about a community centre where you usually have hundreds well, tens of hundreds, depends how big, <laughs> um, you know, that's a lot of in interaction and how we can support youth organisations or community centres put in place those social distancing measures. You know, the youth sector, as you said, has already had a lot of cuts and, uh, to austerity and even just to put in place sort of social distancing measures within a setting is, um, is a lot of financial cost. So there's that to think about, um, but, it, but they can meet out outdoors. But again, like at the moment, it's still in groups of six. So it, again, it's still waiting for that clarity on what some of this guidance might mean. Absolutely. And I think we'd, we'd all love to see more clarity, especially as we look forward to September. And there's been quite a clear statement from Gavin Williamson that schools will be opening and students will be returning full time. That's all students full time. And um, I think we're all um, eagerly awaiting the guidance on exactly how that will work in practice and um, if there's still some, some distancing in place. So if we do think forward to September and imagine that that's the time that schools are returning to some kind of new normal, um, I'd be really interested in all of your thoughts on um, what that ideally would look like. What would we like the recovery curriculum for schools to include? What kind of support would we like to be available to young people um, as they return to school? Kieran, would you like to come in first? Yeah, I, um, I mean, it's a real, I mean, that's a massive and very tricky question, isn't it, Laura? I guess the difference of standpoint is that school leaders are the best people to decide what their specific community do need to, to recover and, and come to terms with um, the lockdown, but how that might have affected their lives and affected them. What I see as a priority for the difference is moving best practice around the system, because some of what I've described and some of what we, you know, we're all describing is some of the best practice that we've seen. But it's definitely a case that this is a very difficult time for leaders. And it's a time in which leadership really has shone through. People have been incredibly creative and thought outside the box. But it's how exhausting for everybody to have to think outside the box separately in their atomised um, parts of, well, often, you know, from their own homes um, via Zoom and from their own schools, um, socially distanced from their colleagues. So actually bringing together some of the best practice, trying to identify, I think particularly for people referral units, attendance has been low and it's been low nationally. For, for vulnerable children. How do we re-engage those learners um, who have felt really far away from other people over the past few months? How do we get attendance back up? How do we rebuild relationships? 
children and families, if they weren't strong before lockdown, then that is a very, very difficult task ahead for staff. Um, and how do we really build teacher confidence? Because we, you're speaking about spatial emotional learning law, which isn't necessarily the, the language that I use, but when we think about pupil well-being, you know, we can't look after students' mental health without looking after teachers' mental health. Teacher well-being and staff well-being has to be at the top of every head's priorities. And I think we need to, um, again, share the best practice and how it is working. Where I've seen it working well, I mean, the difference subscribes to the belief that teachers, particularly um, serving the most disadvantaged communities, deserve the sort of supervision that mental health workers get. And that's why the difference leaders themselves do get fortnightly supervision from a psychologist um, through a model which we have developed called Compassion Focused Leadership Coaching. Uh, and essentially, it's about trying to understand um, challenging situations from a reflective um, standpoint. It's very common in teaching and learning we call it reflective practice this is just another form of reflective practice but really focusing on the kind of emotional dynamics around our, our jobs as teachers um, and I think that model's got a lot of potential and potency lots of our difference leaders from September will be thinking about that that supervision they've experienced for the last year how do they take the compassion focused leadership coaching principles and apply them to staff supervision across the setting so staff who are dealing with um, difficult disclosures who are helping referrals for families how are they coping with their own health um, and well-being in the midst of that real challenge and often quite distressing content and they're thinking about how they create spaces for, for teachers to reflect um, and to protect themselves um, mentally and I think that's got to be a massive priority for September in making sure that we do allow schools to respond to the immediate needs of their communities um, and then a, a third point that I've got is, is more of a macro policy point so I think a real opportunity uh, is that that vulnerable term has been used for the first time to describe children with social workers as an official term in education and for me that's significant because when I was a teacher on the front line and as is currently the case you often have your seating plan or your class list your register and you will know who has special educational needs and an education healthcare plan they're marked on your register you'll now also know who's pupil premium so you often know who's from a um, um, a home with less funds than others and entitled often to free school meals. Um, and, but what you don't necessarily know is who has had a social worker um, and who has therefore, as a proxy, experienced trauma. And I think what's really significant is this vulnerable label, um, and labels can be problematic, but what it has done is made vulnerable children visible for the first time, for frontline teachers, those phone calls home. It's suddenly made staff um, who are, you know, setting off their, their history work and then getting it back in, think twice about the child who hasn't submitted it. Um, and perhaps when having phone calls home, thought twice or maybe thought for the first time about what is that physical environment for the child that I'm speaking to is in. Um, is there anything I should be particularly acutely aware of and, and attuned to as I interact with that child? Um, could I help piece together something and, and give that up to the, um, the safeguarding lead, which would help recognise new um, and escalating risk for that child before it gets worse so that an intervention can be put in place? And I think that's a real opportunity come September, is that teachers for the first time potentially recognise children who, with this extra type of vulnerability it's made the vulnerability visible and what I'd like to 
see in policy terms is I would like to see um, a, ca a catch up premium for those who've experienced trauma. So a vulnerability premium. Currently we have that for looked after children, uh, but it's tied up within the people premium. So it's not seen as separate, but I think that's quite important because potentially the intervention that you need to make sure you learn isn't solely an academic intervention. It might be a therapeutic plus academic intervention. Um, and so I, I think it, that is what I would like to see us do as a, as a country come September is start to capitalise on having begun making those vulnerable children visible, make them further, further visible. Um, and let's actually say this need needs certain intervention, certain funding um, and empower staff to be able to prioritise those children's needs. I think that's something we could certainly get behind um, and yeah, and that we, we'd love to see happening. And I think you're right that teachers have had such a golden opportunity through this period to learn more about the families and the environments, home environments of the peoples that they're working with, with every day. And hopefully that knowledge will be taken forward and will, will help inform plans um, when, when uh, schools are returning. But I was also really interested in the point that you made about the pressure that head teachers have been under through this period. And I know that um, Laura Teacher Tap have done some specific survey work around this. And I wondered if you had any thoughts on what needs to be in place to support head teachers as they're returning. Funnily enough, I, I do, and it links to what Kieran's just said. I think Kieran and I have actually come to a very similar conclusion about what's needed. But um, I guess I start from the head's perspective rather than the kids, which is that a weird thing about TeachTap, we survey teachers every day. And last September, we decided that over the next year, we were going to ask teachers about their anxiety levels. And we ask every Tuesday. And by the end of the year, what we were planning to have was an ability to look back and see what in a year made teachers feel anxious. Of course, that all got blown apart when the pandemic came and schools were closed. But actually what it means is we've continued asking every Tuesday and we have a really good idea of how anxious this whole thing has made teachers. Interestingly, classroom teachers, by and large, less anxious throughout the pandemic than they would be if they were in school. And if you think about your job as a classroom teacher, a huge part of the stress comes from uh, behavior management, trying to move around the school all day and sort of marshal children in and out, the fact you're trying to do break duties and lunch duties and extracurricular activities. Suddenly when you strip a lot of that stuff out as a classroom teacher, although they've been very anxious some weeks, for example, when the closure, before the closure, extremely anxious, um, and just before the return, extremely anxious, the rest of the time, not so bad. Head teachers, meanwhile, are normally a little bit less anxious than classroom teachers because in ordinary times they have control over their school they have people who they can delegate tasks to they have basically ultimate control over their work-life balance and then suddenly they were thrown this thing of you know run a food factory look after run a massive childcare center run an online school and since then their anxiety has been massive and certain weeks particularly when big announcements are made by government shoot through the roof so head teachers have been under unbelievable pressure obviously not all of them people have dealt with it differently but you know what they've been asked to do without holidays repeatedly <laughs> without good guidance has put a lot of pressure on them so when we think about September I sometimes get a bit nervous when everybody goes now is the time to bring in our ideal version of the future of schools because these guys can barely even breathe with just trying to get food vouchers out in what has been a completely chaotic system that said I think what it does mean is we can do stuff. Some really important changes can be made, but they've just got to be extremely straightforward, extremely accessible, and crucially, funded. 
So the one billion pounds that the government have put forward for the catch-up tuition funds, this will work really well as long as there is a clear offer from the companies who are going to be doing the tutoring. It will need to be extremely clear what the hours are, when it can be accessed and who it should be for. If the schools can very quickly assess which children need it, they can very quickly organise when it's going to happen. And actually, if quite a bit of it can be done at distance, rather than having to get, you know, otherwise we're going to have tutors who are sort of super spreaders running around different schools, then this could be something that links home life back in. And actually, in any year, when kids turn up in September, as a teacher, you don't know what's just happened to them over the summer. You don't know what happened to them in the previous year. We should make the same assumptions this September as any September which is that I need to be here, I need to be clear, I need to be consistent, and I need to learn who you are as your person, and I need to meet you where you are right now. One way to do that is academically, but the bit that's been missed, and I think this is what Kieran was getting to the heart of, is what we don't have as a good system for if a kid turns up in your classroom, and I had these when I was teaching, and I can see there's more going on. I can see that actually they're deeply affected, even if it's something as simple as, over the summer they fell out with all their friends, they're now being bullied, they've been totally dumped and they're devastated and isolated and they feel like they don't want to come to school anymore. That's the beginning of a school refuser. But where is the fund? Where is the scheme? Where is the simple, straightforward way to deal with this? And I get, obviously, this is a very complex issue. If it could all be done by menus and cash funds, then it would have already been done. But actually, I don't think we've necessarily always tried. I don't think that has been the sort of premium that Kieran was just talking about, where we've said, Here's a, here's a set of cash and here's two or three things that you can try. And it may not even work for 80% of these children. But if we could stop even 20% of school refusers, that is massive. From where we're at right now, that would be a huge gain. The problem is, one, you have to fund it. And two, you have to be a government that's got the guts to serve a community that it might not be that cool and sexy to stand on a television and say that you're helping. And my big worry is that the current government are very into whatever can be focus grouped and put in a nice headline in certain newspapers. And, you know, saying you stop 20% of school refusers might not, be, might not be the way forward with that. But if they don't do it, the other stuff isn't going to work. Teachers will spend ages and ages trying to do recovery curriculum, trying to sort out mental health, trying, and everybody will get buffeted everywhere. So it's actually in the government's best interests to stop thousands of people trying to do thousands of different things and just make it really clear and really consistent because then they might get some kudos for it. Kudos for it. And even if they don't, they're going to stop lots and lots of interfering, which they don't like in the education system. So yeah, I love this idea. I hadn't thought of it quite as a catch-up premium for maybe vulnerable children, but I think it's a really good way of thinking about it. I'm, I'm really interested in, in this matter and I can see Kieran wants to come in as well. I'm, I'm wondering to what extent is this something, if there were a fund available and it was targeted at vulnerable pupils, is this something that schools should be managing and schools should be commissioning all the work or does this have to be a kind of broader system of actors, of professionals who are all working in a coordinated way in order to provide? Because of what I can see potentially happening is that this then just means it becomes a further set of burdens for schools to have to carry. I'm interested in what, what if you I think can just quickly comment on that. So my view is that's why the voucher system will work for tuition if it's literally a case of all the schools have to do is decide and then it's provided by somebody else. Right. That should be that as far as the burden goes on the school. Kieran, sorry, you wanted to add. Well, I, I guess kind of coming back to both of you, what do we know really, really reduces the risk? of mental health problems. Laura's named school exclusion, but there are many ways in which things can go wrong for children. Um, sorry, not, not school exclusion, school refusing, um, but school exclusion is another. Um, 
that, that yeah, there are many ways. What, what is the key factor that shapes those things? And it's relationships. Laura's just described some of this, the peer-to-peer relationships, which when, break, when they break down can become really catastrophic for as adolescents and younger children. Um, if I were going to have a vulnerable, vulnerability premium or a return to school vulnerability catch-up premium, what I would invest it in is relationships. And I think that's, it would look like potentially um, outward bound trips for which the EEF has done rigorous uh, studies and found that they have real returns for young people, particularly from disadvantaged backgrounds. Um, I would invest it in uh, fewer um, adult child relationships so that we've got really really good um, strong coaching relationships I can think of two schools actually one mainstream one people referral unit um, where they have assigned every adult a much smaller group of children that they kept in touch with over the lockdown and what that allowed was a genuine relationship Laura said I know you as a person that's what we really need between our schools and our children um, and I, I think that would be a really good investment in that money and in the kind of staff supervision which allows people to maintain healthy relationships when children are very, very difficult because let's be honest the behavior that may be presented come september could be very very challenging i expect the difference has campaigned quite a bit around exclusions um, that's the issue which often brings together our mainstream and improved colleagues uh, it's the point of intersection and uh, i'm worried that that challenging behavior will escalate for young people towards um, behavior which means that actually they, they are asked to leave the school community um, but it's allowing reflective practice and discussion that can really help de-escalate those tense situations and um, things to be kind of repaired, relationships that have been damaged to be repaired. And Laura, you are asking about external relationships. I do think they are really, really important that where schools can draw on externals, um, that 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 can happen easily because it can lift the lighten the load a little bit for schools. I, I think honestly that there's there's still quite a long way to go between better effective working between youth work and schools. Um, and my vision would be um, that over time we're able to make one person in each school more responsible for coordinating those external assets outside the school and helping broker them in because it can get hugely overwhelming for schools to feel as though they've got to coordinate now a load of external tutors and the youth workers where they haven't met them yet and oh these people and cams and um, let's get the, the speech language communication um, therapists in and it can be very overwhelming for schools I think actually the difference is is much like we have the deputy head for, for teaching and learning who knows their craft and uh, brokers in external best practice and evidence-based CPD we want to see in mainstream school somebody who's responsible for best practice and well-being safeguarding and external assets to the school and that they we centralize that point because relationships are key and that is the same for, for youth workers you know they do valuable work but it needs to be coordinated and somebody in the school needs to really understand it for it to work hand in glove and and be effective rather than sometimes potentially kind of competitive or or um or confused i think schools and youth workers teachers and youth workers can have a lot of um misapprehensions about one another which aren't helpful for for co-working yeah absolutely and actually and um, if i can just add one more relationship that i think is really crucial into that mix which is the relationship between families and schools mm -hmm. and which we've seen so much good work about through this period which actually all of you have referred to in, in different ways which has to be a real focal point and that also requires investment because it takes time 
um, from teachers and from families to, to engage in that way. And Kaylee, I'd be really interested in your thoughts on how do we repair this relationship between, for example, youth work and schools? And how do we make sure that schools can work really effectively with other services? Yeah, I mean, I think um, from a national perspective, I think there's a lot that could be done there to bring the two together. Like it, it, if you think about the government departments, like young children and young people's lives, like come into each of them in some way. And so it, it kind of enforces this like siloed working approach because there might be a recognized issues, for example, like poor mental health and then Department of Health are dealing with it in one way and will pump out a lot of funding. DfE will do something, DCMS, which is where like youth policy and civil society sits will do something else and there's just not really this like coordinated approach um and i think that often drives them down into sort of like local decision making how things are kind of done whereas if we looked much more holistically and more sort of like a public health approach or you know that kind of thing where we think about okay what how do we want children and young people to grow up in this country what skills do we think they need like what do we what do we want what do we feel the aspirations are like and obviously having young people at the heart of that is essential and then kind of working from there and then th thinking how do we coordinate our sort of policy responses and funding in that way one i think you would get a lot a lot more resource from that rather than kind of replicating and um doing a lot of um uh you know like waste uh, really in terms of like energy and time um, and also it will really then think about, okay, so who can bring what skills to the table and how can you draw those together to make, to make the best outcomes for young people? Um, so I think that's one thing. I think the second thing is often youth workers are sort of like that person in a young person's life who, um, who will be in touch with a CAMS worker, who will know the social worker, who kind of roughly knows what goes on in schools. And I think it's a really big untapped resource for schools. Um, and it's so like how can as a has a youth sector how can we help schools to coordinate some of this because we often youth workers already know more than a social worker more than a teacher because they have that closer relationship with young people so how can we almost help the schools to like not have all of that burden and be that convener for that young person um, and obviously with youth work it, it really is about thinking about what is best for that young person at that time and it's not about sort of any of those other factors so they're well placed to sort of think about that and are in those local communities um so yeah i think there's definitely some work to do around bridging those two and there, like i said before there are really good examples of where that's happening locally but it's at such a micro level so it's like how can we use that best practice and do that more on a regional national scale and how can we get national government and policy makers to have more of a joined up approach. Thanks. Well, we're nearly running out of time and I actually think that's a brilliant note to be leaving on. We've heard some really optimistic, positive ideas um, for, for how things could look uh, as schools start to return properly in September. So, and from Kieran, we've had the idea of a catch up a premium for vulnerable pupils, um, which I think we all could give some more thought to, um, and is a really interesting idea to start to take forward. I think we've heard really clearly from Laura about that need for head teachers to have clarity and have a plan in place when there are um, special funds brought out that they might be able to spend so that they don't have to spend lots of time and energy uh, working out what to do with the new money that comes their way. Um, and I think from Kaylee, that idea of 
coordinated national policy and um, so that the policy making about children and young people isn't all being made in silos and, and not speaking to each other and, and then I think actually from all of you in different ways we've we've heard that importance of sharing best practice idea that none of these schools or youth clubs uh, are in this alone and that if we were all able to share more as we're going into September and um, there's a real opportunity to, to provide each other with support and ideas to take forward um, and I might just throw one final thing into the ring which is that the RSA is thinking and um, really carefully at the moment about that question of how you remove the barriers to schools and different services working together and we're hoping to start doing some research on that over the summer um, and we're particularly interested in anybody who was involved in the every child matters uh, approach and when that was up and running and how we learn the lessons from what did and didn't work from that so if anybody's listening online today who was involved um, in sort of developing that in the first place or was working on it on the front line and has reflections on on how that worked we'd be really interested to hear from you and um, so we are going to have to wrap up now um, but i just want to say a huge thank you to kieran laura and kaylee for taking the time and providing so many valuable insights and um, into these big questions about how we um, how we emerge from from the crisis and what things will look like for children and young people come september and um, if you're following online, please do head over to the RSA website and, and follow uh, the links on the event page to find out more about the work that our speakers are doing. And they're all involved in absolutely brilliant initiatives and we'd really recommend that you follow them and try to support the work that they're doing. And of course, also on our website, you'll find out much more about the work that the RSA is currently engaged in and how you might be able to get involved. And we would love to hear from all of you listening online your ideas about how to create a fair education system and, and stronger support systems, especially for vulnerable children. So please get involved in the conversation online using the hashtag RSA Bridges. Finally, a big thank you to Kieran, Kaylee and Laura, and thank you all for watching. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.